0: Oh, I haven't used this new one since, uh, uh, it's getting too complicated, man, you know, two buttons, come on. Um, well, we'll just, we'll pray before we're, we're going to God's word. Lord God, I thank you for the um, time of worship we just had there, Lord. Lord, I just felt so, uh, I just felt, Lord, that we saw this in a small part, Lord, of what a great King you are, Lord, of the love that you've demonstrated for us, Lord, the things that you achieve for us on the cross, Lord, by paying the price for our sin, Lord, the price that we could never pay. Lord God, as we come to your scripture now, O oh Lord, I pray that we would be humbled by that very fact that you, the Lord Jesus Christ, very God, became the God-man, the die on a tree, Lord, so that everything that was written about you, Lord, in the Old Testament and the New Testament would be fulfilled in you, Lord, that you might bring many sons to glory. Prayers in your name. Amen. So this morning, um, we're continuing in our mini series, In the Build-Up to Christmas. Um, And we're looking at the reasons that Jesus Christ came into the world from heaven. Um, And that's the most important thing that we need to be thinking about in the Build-Up to Christmas. And we can all easily get lost in the busyness of Christmas. But also for us, sometimes maybe we've heard that nativity story so many times that we can lose the significance of it. So last Sunday night, Kevin started our series um, and he looked at Jesus has come to demonstrate God's righteousness. And I would really encourage you, if you weren't there last Sunday evening, please go on our website uh, or Spotify and give that a listen because that was really compliments this, but it was a really, really um, good message as part of this series. And over the next few weeks, we're gonna look at the fact that Jesus came to seek and save the lost that Jesus came that we may have life, that Jesus has come to glorify the Father's name and he has come to do the work of the Father. But today we're going to consider that Jesus came to fulfill the law. And as we consider this, we're going to be reading from Matthew 5:17 to 20. Um, I have it in the ESV today because um, that's what I'm studying from. But obviously you can read along with whichever translation you have. But I have got it up on the screen when we're coming to it. But first, some context is needed. That's always really helpful. So we're in Matthew chapter five. Um, and at this point, we're at the Sermon of the Mount, which is a very famous part of Jesus' teaching. And it goes from Matthew five to seven. And if you've been with us on an evening, we've actually been doing the Beatitudes, which is the start bit in chapter five. Now, this comes very early in Jesus's earthly ministry. And Jesus is teaching everyone who hears him both then and today, how can we live a life that is truly pleasing to God? Now, when we're reading Matthew's gospel, we need to know that when Matthew was writing, his audience was mainly Jews. And it means that there are loads of Old Testament references and maybe Jewish practices, which are mentioned, which we're maybe a little bit less familiar with. And the reason is because Matthew is trying to show, through his presentation of Jesus's life, that Jesus was the long-awaited-for Messiah. In Greek, that word can also mean Christ. That's why it's called Jesus Christ. And that word means God's anointed one. The Messiah was promised by God to deliver his people, to set up a new kingdom. But Matthew is trying to persuade his readers, and I'm hoping through showing you what Jesus said today in this passage, that he was this promised Messiah, that he was the king promised from old. But Jesus wasn't coming just to set up a physical kingdom like any other king or ruler. Jesus was coming to set up an everlasting kingdom the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus claimed that he was this long-awaited king. And through his sermon on the mount in these chapters, he tells his listeners how the citizens of this new kingdom of heaven are expected to live, just as there's rules and procedures in any kingdom. What What is the standards in heaven, God's kingdom? So as we come to read these verses, we need to remember that these are the very words of Jesus Christ. So let us open our ears and let's pray that the Spirit would give us minds and hearts to understand this glorious teaching. Let us read Matthew chapter five, verses 17 to 20, and it should be on the screen there. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an uh, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, as we start in verse 17, I think we need to define two words that jump out of us straight away law and prophets. Now, we can simply understand. Those two together is meaning the whole of the Old Testament. Um, Sometimes we can find it more helpful to view the law in three components to make us understand it a bit easier. So there's the judicial law, and those were the civil laws delivered um, specifically to the nation of Israel. There's the ceremonial laws, which kind of involve the burnt offerings, the sacrifices, All the rituals and ceremonies and that was all in connection with worship in the temple and thirdly the moral law and that's consisted in the ten commandments which lots of people in life have heard of um, and the great moral principles set out in the old testament and these are permanent that's maybe a bit of a foreshadowing to what we're going to come to and the prophets well we just need to understand that is all the prophetic books Now, the prophets, they taught the law to the nation of Israel often telling them to come back to God because they've sinned against the law. But they also pointed forward to this long-awaited Messiah. Now, in these verses, as we said early in Jesus' ministry, he clarifies to the Jewish audience that he was not seeking to destroy or put away the Old Testament. No, Jesus came to fulfill it. And the reason Jesus says this is because he knows that some of his listeners, some of the Jews might have been thinking, is this Jesus bringing, is he bringing a new teaching? Where's this Jesus come from? What is he saying? And Jesus, knowing the hearts and minds of men who are listening, before they even had to ask the question, he goes completely head on and confronts it. Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. Now, when Jesus uses that word, fulfill, what it doesn't mean that he's come and completed the Old Testament, that he's finished the Old Testament, that it's gone, it's nothing more is needed with that. And it doesn't mean that he's adding a second layer of instructions on top of the Old Testament. No, when Jesus said that he came to fulfill them, he meant that through his life, he would fully carry out everything that's mentioned in the Old Testament scriptures. All of the Old Testament was pointing forwards and has its full meaning in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of those ceremonial laws that we were talking about, they were just a shadow of what was to come in him. The laws of the need to sacrifice, of how to worship, they all pointed to Jesus Christ. The prophecies, even to the smallest detail, all have the fulfillment In Christ Jesus. The Old Testament, written covering a period of thousands of years, all finds its culmination in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's absolutely amazing. It's absolutely amazing. 66 books, 40 authors, written over thousands of years, all perfectly linked together and fulfilled in Christ Jesus. The phrase, you couldn't make it up, that's because you can't. It's just, it's so massive. And this, this year... I have to say in my heart, I've really started just to see a small level even more, just how big scripture is and how many connections there are. And I can only see it in part. It's absolutely magnificent. And if you ever feel like you doubt when you just read scripture, it's too amazing not to be true. It's perfect. But not only that, but Jesus perfectly kept all of the law, all of God's instructions. And we find as he continues in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus didn't only fully live the law. What he does is he reveals the true meaning, the true intended meaning of the law. What we find out as the Sermon on the Mount continues that Jesus has to correct the incorrect teachings of man, of the supposed experts or the law, he goes on to talk about murder, about lust, how that man just looked at it in a very small sense. How the Pharisees taught that, well, as long as you don't murder, that's where it stopped. But Jesus goes even deeper. He looks at the heart. He looks at the motives behind murder. Isn't just the sin isn't just murder that's sin. It's the anger that dwells in the heart. As one commentator says it, Jesus is the law upholder, not destroyer. Jesus unfolds rather than sweeps away the law. Now we might ask, why is this important? Well, firstly, Jesus makes clear that his teaching fully agreed with the Old Testament. The Old and the New Testament are not opposed to each other. They complement each other. We understand the old by looking at the new. We understand the new by also looking at the old. It's one continuous thread. There isn't this dividing line. They are connected. Jesus even declares in scripture elsewhere that the scriptures cannot be broken. They are perfect. And he tells us in verse 18 here that not, I, I, I included the ESV one because I really love the description of it, it uses these words as an iota and a dot. An iota was the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And it goes even further, saying the law will stand and is long. The smallest letter in the law will stand. And it goes even further by using the word dot. That's the smart, smallest part of the smallest letter. So if you, in our English language, if I did the letter I, it's not just the letter I that's going to stand, it's the little dot on the top. That's how to the point Jesus is. It's going to stand as long as heaven and earth stand. Basically, the law is as enduring as heaven and earth is enduring. And secondly, and we're remembering that Matthew was writing to Jews. For the Jews, this should have made them cast their minds back to the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. Remember, Matthew's trying to persuade them that Jesus is as long as for a promised eternal king and even though we are not well to my knowledge we're not jews today we can still find such confidence in looking back to the old testament prophecies about how they're described about jesus i've included three i think up there that one nathan yeah no <laughs> like a game i've got three quotes there Isaiah 7, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. That was written 700 years before Jesus was born. Secondly, in Micah, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one for me who's to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old of ancient of days again around 700 years before jesus was born and thirdly when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers i will raise up an offspring after you who will come from your body and i will establish his kingdom he shall build a house my name and i will establish the throne of his kingdom forever that was a promise to date to king david And it wasn't just that God was going to bring his son for another earthly kingdom. We're talking about the eternal kingdom. And that was written even long ago, about a thousand years before Jesus was born. In fact, Jesus has fulfilled conservatively 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. 300? It's absolutely ridiculous. Some people say up to 600. It's absolutely amazing. But simply put, the king has come. God is with us. So secondly, who can enter the kingdom of heaven? This is perhaps the most important thing for us today. And the most important thing is that Jesus unfolds the true meaning of the law to let us understand who can get into heaven. And when he did this, he didn't just bring a different angle, a different interpretation on the Old Testament. No, Jesus took the Old Testament and he revealed its true and intended meaning. And the reason they need a clarifier was because of the incorrect teaching as an application from the teachers of the law. In fact, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they'd done two things wrong with the Old Testament. They had either added their own rules, or they'd have made elaborate excuses to get around the law. So, firstly, adding rules. So the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They were seen as the most holy and respected individuals. But over the years, they'd placed more and more emphasis on the visible aspects of the law, so the things that people could see them doing. For instance, God had commanded his people to fast once a year in the Old Testament. But the Pharisees, that wasn't enough. It became twice a week. So it went from one to 104 times. And the reason they did this is because it could be seen. People could look at them and say, aren't they so holy, aren't they so great? But God never asked for that. And we know that God's law is perfect. And if we add, or if we take away from something that's perfect, well, by definition, it's no longer perfect. And in fact, this was an insult to God. And secondly, the Pharisees had found these elaborate excuses to get around what God had actually said. So not only had they added more, they took away also from what God said. So an example of this, in, um, in Matthew 15, Jesus criticizes the Pharisees. And this is because the Pharisees had added their own extra little law to get around The fifth commandment so the fifth commandment is to honor and respect your mother and your father to care for them to look after them to do things pleasing but the Pharisees had a little system so say this I haven't got any money on this but say my phone say this represents my one of my possessions say this is lots of my money what the Pharisees would do would go see I dedicate my belonging to the Lord it's God's but they would keep it for themselves but they would dedicate it to the Lord then if my parents, who aren't that old, but if they got a little bit older, shall we say, they're really struggling and they, they need help. They need financial aid for carers, for all that sort of stuff. And they come to me, David, can you help us out how we looked after you for all those years? I'd love to help your mum and dad, but the problem is all my money's dedicated to the Lord. Um, I'd love to, I'll keep it though, but I don't have to help you now because it's dedicated to God. So they'd get around the fifth commandment, the simple commandment of loving your parents they had these elaborate little schemes to change it. And I think we can see that in today's society, these two problems. If we look maybe at, say, the Catholic Church, who adds all of its rites and its rituals and all this tradition, things that people can never really do, add these works. But we also see other sides of the church who like to twist God's law and say, I know it says that, but like, you know, if we do it in a loving way, then I can kind of change scripture. So it doesn't really matter what we say about marriage, what we say about gender, what we say about all these things, because we can explain it away through a different teaching. But we need to also look inwards, because we all also can change God's laws. We can explain things away in our hearts to make it suit for us. Oh, but, you know, I know that might be it, but really, when I explain it with these 10 steps, God, it actually wasn't the sin in the first place. When those sort of things are coming into our mind, that's the devil just whispering in our ear, allowing us to convince us to sin against God. But the motive always starts with us. We are inherently sinful. The devil just likes to take those opportunities to go, you're right, David, you can do that. That's great. And we all do it. So we need to not just look at the Pharisees and leave it with them or look at the outside church. We need to look at ourselves and how we do that every single day. The Pharisees were all about the external. But Jesus wants to expand their minds to realize what God wants is a change of heart. God looks at the attitude of the heart. And this isn't a new teaching that Jesus brought. When you look back through the Old Testament, you see at many stages God's desire for the heart attitude. He says in Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. In Psalm 40, when David's describing um, a praise of God, he says, I delight to do your will, oh my God, for your law is within my heart. The emphasis isn't on the doing, the emphasis is on the heart attitude of delighting in the law and then following it out. So Jesus condemns this belief that it's just the visible things that would be enough to meet God's standards. And this is where the Pharisees and the scribes The teachers of the law were so guilty. Jesus described these Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they were gleaming white, perfect. The visible was great, but behind was the dead bones, all uncleanliness. When you looked at the Pharisees, they looked great, but the heart was not changed. The heart was dead. So what's the significance of this for us? Well, let us read back over these verses. Verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, as I said, during Jesus' day, the Pharisees were seen as the most holy people, the most strict followers. They dedicated their entire lives to following uh, the law. But Jesus is telling those listening that they're not even gonna come into the kingdom of heaven. I'll give you a little picture to try and describe it you're all gonna have to do a fitness test. I've got a fitness test for you. And only certain people who are good enough are gonna pass. But the problem is, I've brought a group of athletes out the back. And when they come through, you're gonna see them. They're gonna look, they're gonna have all the right gear. They've dedicated their lives to being the fastest they can be, the fittest they can be. When you look at them, you're gonna think, well, clearly we're not gonna beat these guys when we bring them out. Don't worry, it's not the children, they're not that. But when we bring them out, you're going to, well, obviously I'm not going to beat those people. What you are going to do? You're probably going to start to look around the room and go, well, I'm probably fitter at least in a few people in this room. I'm not going to come last, surely, because I know I'm not fitter than those athletes, but you know what, I'm fitter than one or two people in here. That might be what you're thinking. But when it comes to it, I tell you, actually, not to dishearten any of you, but uh, none of those athletes, the people of all the gear who dedicated their whole lives to this, none of them have passed the test. It's now what you're thinking. Well, I don't, I don't stand a chance, do I? And that's what Jesus is saying here. The Pharisees, who when you look at them, you think, well, they're the holy ones, but I'm probably more holy and right than some of my friends. But Jesus said, they're not getting into heaven. The most holy people in our day and age, they're not getting into heaven. So then what you what are you going to think about yourself? Well, surely, how, how am I? How am I going to be righteous enough to get into heaven? But let's not make a mistake, Jesus isn't just using a scare tactic here. He's not trying to shock the people into living a more holy life. It's not the, the practice mock exam in January where you fail it and you realize, oh no, I actually I need to work now. Notice it's because this is showing us how holy God is. It's showing the standards that he expects as citizens of heaven. And these standards are no lower than God's perfection. And the holiness of God is made clear throughout the Old Testament, from the worship in the temple to the many sacrifices. God declares to his people, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And even in all these things that were written to have their fulfillment in Jesus. If you click the next slide, I think, Nathan. So two, two examples of that to the tabernacle this represented the dwelling place of god in the old testament and the tabernacle was intricately designed and only the high priest only one man could enter into the innermost section once a year and when he entered he offered a sacrifice to pay for the sins of himself and for the people and this tabernacle was set up to show two things it was to show how holy god was but it was also to show that man and God were separated because of our sin. And the sacrificial system where they would sacrifice animals was given to show that there was a price that needed to be paid for our sin. And by sacrificing an animal, it was to show that blood had been shed to pay a price for that. But both of these things pointed forward to the need for something even greater so that sin could be paid for once and for all thirdly how might we be saved and brought into the kingdom of heaven now we're meant to to be thinking at this point if the experts of god's law can't get into heaven how can anyone get in but this is the point of what jesus is saying and this is the message that runs from the start to the finish of god's word no person by his or her own attempts will ever better work their way into heaven. This is because when we don't follow God's perfect rules, the standards of heaven, we sin against his perfect rules. We sin against God. We sin against what God has declared to be perfect. And the citizens of heaven need to be as perfect and as good as God is. To sin only once means to fall below perfection, just once. But in reality, we all know that we've all sinned countless times Today, this week, never mind across entire lifetimes. Roman 3 declares that uh, none is righteous, no, not even one. No one seeks for God, all has turned aside. Together we have become worthless, no one does good, not even one person. And as Kevin brought, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as part of his sermon. Indeed, our natural tendency is not what God desires, it's what we desire. You know, people often use the example of you never have to teach a child to misbehave. They just do it, don't they? Even from a young age. And that reflects in a small way our natural tendency to do what pleases ourselves and not to please God. We seek ourself, not God. The glory of God is the standard to enter heaven. And it's clear that we have fallen way short of that standard. The problem of the Pharisees and of ourselves is that we often take our eyes off God's standard and look at our own standard. We compare ourselves with each other as if that—if I'm better than him, I'm getting into heaven. And maybe the Pharisees were, you know, maybe had a higher standard than some of the people around, but that's not the standard that God's gonna compare us by. He compares us by his own standard. At this point in Jesus's message, we as hearers are meant to realize that the, gra- the grave situation we are in, God is perfect and only those who are perfect may join him in heaven. As we look at our hearts and at, as our minds, we find that willfully on many occasions, we have indeed sinned. We have placed ourselves in direct opposition with God. We have acted against the rules he has provided yet this is not where the story has to end this is why we celebrate each and every year both christmas and easter this is why we meet together several times per week because we reflect on the reason that jesus came to the earth to from from heaven to earth look at what he says in verse 17. it's in the middle of the sentence he has the phrase i have come Jesus has come to earth on a mission, not to destroy the Old Testament. He's come to save us from our perilous situation, to fulfill the promise that God had made that he would save his people. Those famous um, words in the Gospel of John, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We all need a righteousness, not of any other man or woman. We need the righteousness of the only person who fully lived out and carried out all the demands of the law, Jesus Christ. As we've considered above the tabernacle showed the need for someone to go before God as a mediator. They sent the high priest in once a year to pay the price for sin. But that high priest, he had to go in every single year because it didn't fully pay that price. Jesus Christ is the only person who's ever lived to be fully righteous. Jesus Christ can enter into the presence of God. He can go into the innermost sanctuary. And Jesus Christ can offer a sacrifice much greater than that of a bull or a lamb. When he died on the cross, Jesus Christ shed his blood. And Jesus Christ offers his blood to pay the price for sin. And he only has, his sacrifice so great, he only had to do it once, once and for all. This is why he's called in scripture, the great high priest. He did what no man could ever do. If we remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus, what did he shout out? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's amazing. Therefore for Jesus's death, the price of sin can be paid once and for all. And through this, people can be saved and brought into the kingdom of heaven. Through Jesus' death, our sin is taken away and we are clothed with his righteousness so that we are worthy to enter into heaven. We are given the righteousness of the only one who ever was righteous, Jesus Christ. But how does this work? And does Jesus' death on the cross mean that everyone goes to heaven? That's surely that's a common belief, isn't it? You know, there's this vague idea of there's this heavens quite vague, and everyone's loved ones are there. But let us look at the answer from Romans three twenty one and twenty two. Said in Romans three twenty one, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, revealed, apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. This is the important bit, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. It tells us that only those who have faith in Jesus Christ who believe in him will be given his righteousness. Only those who believe in Jesus Christ will be saved from the power of sin and brought into heaven. And having faith and belief, it isn't just accepting that jesus christ came or that he was a man if you look at lots of different religions they all have a a version of jesus no having faith and belief is trusting that jesus of nazareth of the bible that he is the son of god that he is fully god and fully man the one who was promised for throughout the old testament it's fully accepting that the reason that jesus christ came to earth was to save us from our sins Sins that we have all individually committed against a holy God and that we are responsible for. It's being sorry that we've sinned against a perfect God. And we accept that there's nothing that we could do if we live for the rest of our, for thousands of years. There's nothing we can do that can right those wrongs. That's not how it works. And because of that, because of our sin, we deserve to be separate from heaven. And that is what hell is. It's punishment for the wrongs that we have done against the perfect and holy God. But we can cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ as the great high priest to save us from our sins because only he is righteous and only he can do this for us. This is what is known as justification by faith alone, being declared righteous before a holy God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And this is what, this is what I want you to remember at Christmas. It isn't. It doesn't stop at a baby in a manger. It's the culmination. It's the start of the greatest rescue plan that has ever happened in life, declared by God from the start of the Old Testament. And it's all fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So that's my question for this morning as we come to Christmas. Are you trying to be saved by your own efforts, by your own righteousness? Because as we can see from here, it's not enough. God is great and he's perfect. The only way to be saved is to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to confess your sins before him. And there's an amazing, amazing thing that happens. When the Lord Jesus Christ saves you, he takes away your sin, he gives you righteousness but the Holy Spirit comes amongst you and he changes your heart. He gives us a new heart, a heart that then loves God truly, a heart that wants to do what God commands in his word. And not only that, he gives us the power to walk in it. And this was foretold in the Old Testament long before Jesus came on earth. He says in Jeremiah 31, I will put my law within them. I will write it upon their hearts. Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. God gives us a heart to love his law and the power to live out a life that is pleasing to God in response to what Jesus has done for us. And I'm God willing, and if the elders are willing, and you as a congregation are willing to listen to me, I would love in the new year to look at how that works out, how we as Christians can live out this moral teaching from the Lord Jesus Christ. But I just want to close with what David picked as one of the songs, which, you know, I couldn't believe. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, as we come to this time of year, Lord, I pray that our minds and our hearts wouldn't just get stuck in that pattern year after year, Lord, of getting trapped maybe in the busyness, Lord, of losing that significance of what you've achieved. Lord Jesus Christ, my desire, and I know your desire, is that people would be saved, that people wouldn't seek their own righteousness, Lord, but they would seek your perfect righteousness in your Son. Lord Jesus Christ, by your Spirit, I pray that you would empower people, Lord, this morning to live out your perfect word. And for anyone who does not know you, Lord, as we come to this communion table now, Lord, that they would reflect upon what you've achieved for them on the cross, and that they may I confess to you that you is Lord and confess their sins for forgiveness. I praise things in your name. Amen.